Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hello, podcast family and friends. My name is Rob Bevan, and you are listening to the Back Pain Podcast. Today's episode is just myself, I'm afraid Dave uh, isn't joining us today. I'm interviewing... Dermot Denany, who is a physiotherapist who's currently working in Kent, and he'll tell you a little bit more about himself in a moment when we start the episode. We're talking today all about opiates, the NICE guidelines, and back pain. Now, this has been a huge topic of discussion recently, both in the media, on so on social media, in various back pain support groups, as opiates were, or as the Daily Mail put it, no longer recommended in the use of lower back pain. Or, or chronic pain and, and various other things. So a lot of people got quite scared about why this happened, why this took place. People said, well, opiates are actually really helping my back pain. Does that mean I'm going to have to stop taking them tomorrow? So we reached out to Dermot to tell us all about this and ask some of the questions which people have reached out to us about the use of opiates and about the use of back pain, how they work and why they are actually no longer recommended. And it was a really fascinating episode. So I really hope there's a lot for you to take away from this. In other news, have you checked out our provider network? Head on over to www.thebackpainpodcast.com and if you are someone who is struggling with back pain or looking for someone to help you with back pain, you can simply pop in your postcode and find someone who is Back Pain Podcast approved, tried and tested, local to you. So pop in a postcode and it'll come up with a list of people within your area which you can go and get some help for your lower back pain. Also, are you following us on social media? We are on Instagram and very active on Twitter as well, at The Back Pain Pod on Twitter and at The Back Pain Podcast on Instagram. If you have any questions, you can reach out on either one of those platforms and we will get back to you. We might even do an entire episode dedicated to that question if it's something which a lot of people are asking. But that's it from me. I'll leave you to sit back and enjoy the latest episode on opiates, the nice guidelines and back pain. Over and out. And welcome back to another episode of the Back Pain Podcast. Delighted to be joined by Dermot today, who is going to be talking all about opiates and back pain. So, would you like to introduce yourself, Dermot? Tell us a little bit about you, where you come from, and what you do. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Uh, my name is Dermot Denany. I am a physiotherapist. I work in a large multidisciplinary pain management centre in central London. Um, what else do you need to know about me? I'm the chair of the Physio Pain Association and I was on the NICE guideline for um, chronic pain that came out earlier this year. I was a committee member. Brilliant. So obviously we invited you on because this has been a huge topic um, kind of in the news recently in back pain groups and support groups about the worry about opiates and back pain because obviously they were removed from the NICE guidelines as a standard recommendation for back pain so we kind of wanted to clear up some of the facts about why that happened and or you know about the evidence and and bits like that so can we kick it off by telling us you know what are opiates and you know how do they work on pain yeah sure without uh getting too complicated and maybe just you know being um clear i'm I'm not an expert but i am um a qualified independent prescriber um as well as being on the back pain or on the nice guidance for chronic pain rather than the back pain ones but opioids are <laughs> everyone knows a type of medication um they are a uh analgesic so i I tend not to use the word painkiller because in reality 
there aren't any pain medicines that actually completely stop pain or if they do that's extremely unusual so it's more pain relief or analgesia hmm. so um how do they work well um if we can accept that pain is an experience that's um influenced by if you like alterations in our nervous system and signaling within the nervous system then opioid medication works on trying to alter the signals within the nervous system so they um if you like, they um, work on special sensors that are on nerves um, to alter the signals that the nerves um, are sending or, uh, and, and therefore by doing so, the hope is that they reduce pain. So that's a really uh, basic explanation of opioids. There, um, there are traditionally two types of opioids, I guess, um, th that just work on those receptors. And then um, there are another type of painkillers, tramadol being one of them that have different effects as well as working on those um, special opioid sensors on the nerves. So the most common, I guess, types of opioids that people would be aware of are things like codeine, um, uh, but also morphine and uh, hydrocodeine or um, oxycodone and fentanyl and buprenorphine. They're the most common types of uh, opioids um, um, that are prescribed. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and so most people will be fairly familiar with, with, with those drugs, especially kind of codeine and morphine, you know, they're kind of, you use quite a lot. And you mentioned tramadol as well, although it works slightly differently, it's still put in the category of, of an opioid. Yeah. So that's good. And yeah. I like what you said about that, that painkiller as well, you know, that we're kind of moving away from that idea of trying to kill pain and that pain augmenter or the, you know, dampening down of pain or something like that as well. It kind of, it spins the narrative slightly as well when we're talking about painkillers. Well, yeah, it's something about kind of expectations because often when people are prescribed, they do expect, you know, because they're called painkillers, that they're going to stop the pain. Mm. And for most, it's more a, perhaps a, a reduction in pain levels at, at best, you know, if it can do that, then it, to allow them to do the things they want to be able to do to get on with their lives. Yeah, I love that. I love the way you put it. So then obviously we, we decided today to talk about kind of the NICE guidelines. Now, for those who, a lot of people have heard of NICE or NICE guidelines, mm -hmm. what are they? You know, if, from, if I've never heard of NICE guidelines before or NICE, what are they? Yeah, so um, maybe it's good to start with what is, what is NICE. NICE stands for the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. It used to be called the National Institute for Clinical Excellence. Um, and it was kind of, it was founded in, gosh, was it 1999, 2000? Uh, so yeah, 21 22 years ago now, um, with the intention of trying to um, reduce the postcode lottery in terms of healthcare service delivery. So, uh, what they were, what what the what it was set up to try and attempt to do is to um, review or look over all of the research and all of the evidence for all the different treatments, and then set recommendations or guidelines um, about you know where the strongest evidence is to try and ensure that. Wherever you are, you have access to um, the best quality care that has the strongest evidence to support its use. So that's kind of the the background, and 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 then off off that, nice um, tend to um, identify topics, and they're usually they usually identify topics based on um, perhaps the, the um, um, NHS England or um, Health and Social Care might recommend a topic that they would like NICE to look at um, to consider the evidence to work out what's going to be the most helpful or most effective treatments for people living with those conditions. And they cover 
you know, a vast range of health conditions and they're constantly um, uh, drafting new reviews as well as updating older um, reviews that they published previously. So, so that's kind of the nice guidelines. Does that answer your question? And can I say any more on them? That does. So, no, that, that makes total sense. So they're, so they're constantly evolving, obviously, as evidence changes and they're constantly reviewing stuff that was published, you know, last week, last month, last year, 10 years ago to ensure that everybody is on the, yeah, getting the highest quality of care, yeah. you know, day to day. So then do people, do GPs and doctors and people like that, do they look at these and then is that what then determines what care people get based on, they kind of summarizes all the evidence? Yeah, well, basically, so actually, maybe there's a couple of other points to add to that. So the NICE guidelines tend to be um, for uh, England and Wales. Uh, Scotland has a different system, but they do uh, often um, talk to each other as it were, work together. But uh, the guidelines that come out here are really intended to be for everyone from healthcare professionals so that they you know, can have a look at a, a guidelines for a particular condition to ensure that they are offering um the most evidence-based treatments, um, but also for what we call commissioners. So if you like, um, the um, people who buy services. So, you know, um, there are commissioners who have purchased services and they want to make sure that they're paying for uh, treatments that have evidence behind them and that are effective. So they'll often look at them. But as we know now, you know, NICE very much in, with their guidelines, they release them. Um, they also release them in formats that are... Um, less filled with jargon so that they are more user-friendly for, you know, person on the street. But also you, you notice the media are often interested in guidelines when they're published and you'll, you'll see the headlines, you know, uh, depending on what, what NICE is saying with their guidelines, particularly depending on how, um, you know, the level of interest in the topic. So things like, yeah, medication and certain conditions have a lot more interest and will often attract media attention. Yeah, especially with something like back pain and opiates, you know, back pain is obviously a huge topic and opiates are also a huge topic as well. So, you know, the, the red tops will like, like to jump on it and, uh, and make mm. a big a, and often a, a larger deal than they probably should about a lot of these, a lot of these topics that jump up mm. in, uh, in, in healthcare from time to time. You know, it sells papers in the day, doesn't it? So uh, that's what they, I'm sure what they're, they're trying to achieve. Well, <laughs> you don't yeah. have to answer that one. <laughs> um, yeah, no comment. Maybe it's probably the best thing for me to say. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but maybe a point, Rob, to be clear on with the, 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 the guidelines that came out earlier this year is for, you know, it's specifically for chronic pain. And there are separate guidelines for back pain, uh, which came out mm. well, the, 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 originally 2009, and then they were updated or revised yeah. in 2016. So, so the guideline that came out um, earlier this year is for chronic pain, so pain that lasts for more than three months. Um, and um, it's kind of split into two parts. One is uh, a part for all types of chronic pain, which would include back pain. And then there's a second part for uh, what's called chronic primary pain. So pain where there isn't a, a, a another underlying condition that explains the pain, I guess, I guess is the easiest way to, to explain what that is. And so... So it gets a bit confusing because for back pain, you may need to look at mm. both guidelines to kind of yeah. get a sense of what, what's been recommended. Yeah. So if I can just jump back slightly then just to, to NICE, when, the, when they're looking at why things or how things are effective and, and not effective, 
you know, how do they determine that something is not effective when it might have been before? And that, whether that's opiates or, or any medication or, or any particular type of treatment, because it's, yeah. if you're listening to this and you said, well, it was in the guidelines 10 years ago, what's changed now to, to, to remove something, whether that's a, a particular treatment type or a surgery? Is that just based on up-to-date evidence? Pretty much, yes. So, um, so you know, when once NICE decide or kind of identify a topic they're going to work on, then they will develop a, if you like, uh, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? A, they will um, put that out to stakeholders to to agree the kind of the scope of so it's a scoping document to agree the scope of the review and then once that's mm. agreed then they're very rigid on okay we've agreed what the questions are going to be that that is what we focus on and we won't you know um deviate from that um it's part of if you like rigorous methodology that they use and then what they do is they have a, a team of you know amazingly um skilled research Mm, professionals sure. who are you know who can um search the literature and pull together all of the the evidence and so why something might be recommended at some point and then perhaps change well it, it can be that you know in the in the time between an original review and then this one there'll be new research that's been published which gives um results that can be added to the analysis to decide whether something mm. remains um yeah you know, has a strong evidence base or not. So, yeah, so they're constantly, you know, research is happening yeah. all the time, especially in something like yeah. back pain. So, you know, there's often a lot that they draw, they can draw on for that. But again, the caveat with this um, was that a lot of the recommendations from treatment were uh, based on research for chronic pain that wasn't back pain. Yeah. No, and that's a yeah, and this is a, that's a really good thing. So people listening, that's a you know we're evolving the evidence. It's constantly changing and improving to to find out what works. You know, no, there's no vendetta against people with back pain trying to do something. This is purely just to try and improve the management. And it's constantly looking at that evidence and evolving and changing, which is what what any good clinical research should be doing. So we should be taking out the stuff that isn't that good and putting in the stuff that is good. So that's a, a good thing. Yeah, so they kind of look at the um, strength of the evidence, they call it, rather than the quality. And they, they have quite, you know, again, a rigorous system of, you know, reviewing the research and, and kind of almost like grading it in terms of how strong the evidence comes from that. And yeah. that's based on lots of different things around the, the way the research is done and the population it's done yeah. and, and things like that. They also look at considered things like, you know, the population and how how specific that popular the, the people that they've done the research on might be versus can it be something that you could you know apply to anybody and everybody or is it very specific group of people that they've looked at that might not be so mm. relevant to everybody and they look at other things like the cost and that so you know economic analysis and things like that or all of these are factors that are considered um yeah. with night by nice Brilliant. so then the, this guideline then which came out for chronic pain and, and chronic back pain what did they say then about opiates? You know, did they say that, or I'll leave that open. What, what did they say about opiates in the use of chronic pain and chronic back pain? So I think, um, you know, they're quite clear in the, in the medication section on, you know, um, there's a, a very limited number of medications that they would recommend considering um, and opioids are not in that group of medications. So, um, so, you know, the advice is not to start, especially if it's something that you've not been taking before, then don't, you know, what they use, instigate or initiate is the word that's used, um, a prescription for opioid medication uh, for chronic pain, for long-term pain. Um, but mm. again, maybe, you know, 
just being clear that uh, opioids have a use in what we call uh, shorter term pain, acute pain, you know, pain from an injury or surgery, um, and also for end of life care, opioids have a place. So it's kind of, uh, it depends. It, when we're talking specifically about long-term pain, they're saying it's, it's not recommended. Mm. Um, um, but you know, there is a caveat because I, I think yeah, some of the, if you like, the headlines were that interpreted as this as saying stop all opioids for everybody. And you know, NICE have been quite clear in the guideline to say that if somebody's already on these medications, it's not advisable to stop something like that immediately. And for some people, no. if they're on relatively low doses and and they can, you know, they can talk about how it's helping them, then then there's a case for continuing it. That's so nice. You know, I'm trying to think. It, I know it's in the document. I think it's on page 13 of the guideline. It's MG193, if anyone wants to look it up. Um, <laughs> they talk about, you know, a, agreeing a shared plan for continuing safely if the person taking them reports benefit at a safe dose with few side effects or harms. So it's, uh, so, uh, you know, that was interesting just observing how that was perhaps advertised or, you know, that, 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 mm. that point was missed that it's not about stopping these for everybody. But, but you know, at the same time, it is about ensuring that people who are on these medications are aware of the potential risks and side effects from these medications, you know, particularly around um, the risk of dependency. Uh, so that means, you know, becoming, um, you know, sometimes people use this word addiction, but we often use the word dependency more that, you know, the body becomes dependent on these medications, the risk of escalating the dose where the, you have to keep upping and upping the dose that you take because our bodies become used to the medication and therefore it becomes less effective. And so that can be a problem if we keep upping and upping the dose because uh, opioids can have an effect on things like our breathing function. So that can be, you know, um, uh, yeah, a, a, a fatal if, if, you know, we, if we were to overdose on something like that. But also mm -hmm. longer term use of medication like opioids, it can affect things like our endocrine function, so our hormone function in the body, and also um, things like bone density and things like our libido or sex drive. And there's all sorts of uh, ways that it can affect us uh, more generally. That uh, And if if it's causing those side effects but not actually helping pain, then we really have to think about why why would yeah. why would why would we continue on them? Yeah. Oh, that's, that, that's, that's really important, actually. And, and then what you said originally, I think, should really hit home as well that the headline being stop opiates for back pain doesn't really do it a lot of justice and that's not what they're saying they're not saying everybody who's currently taking some oromorph or, or, or cocodamol or codeine we're not saying that everybody should suddenly tomorrow stop taking that and it's about when someone's going to see someone they've had pain for a long time and they've had chronic pain and they're not taking an opiate suddenly starting to take an opiate is not going to really, you know, the evidence says it's not going to really help that long-term pain. Also, it comes with significant side effects, so consider that. However, if someone's taking, as you said, something low dose and it's improving their pain and that they're, they're managing fine and they don't have any side effects, and as long as they're aware of the risks of it, then it's it you know that's a discussion between yourself and, and your prescribing physician to, to to judge whether it's for you or not. Exactly. I mean, a nice, you know, you'll see this throughout many of the guidelines. The emphasis is on what we call shared decision making. And exactly as you've described, Rob, you know, it's about that um, informed choice um, and aware of the potential risks and harms. Um, 
And um, yeah, uh, so it's it's always nuanced. It's always hmm. um, more complex than a straightforward do this or don't do yeah. this. You know, it depends on the person, depends yeah. on the situation, depends on the dose, depends on how effective it is, depends yeah. on side. So many factors to consider. And that's why, like most particularly long-term health conditions, the really important thing is about, you know, having the time in the beginning to really you know, complete, you know, between you and, and your clinician, whoever that is, a, a really detailed, thorough kind of understanding of of your pain, how it affects you, um, you know, so that you can then work out how helpful or not this is. Mm. Um, yeah. That's, oh, that's really good. That, that shared decision-making concept is, is so important in healthcare. And that's what a lot of patients might not realize that is actually happening because a, a skilled a skilled clinician will be doing that with every single patient that walks through the door and it's you know no one is getting a cookie cutter approach everything is adaptable so although you might have a similar treatment to someone else it is that two-way conversation around what helps what what you want what you don't want and all those factors that you know play into clinical decision making and that's a really important thing to to acknowledge i think that takes place in every consultation with every medical provider wherever you are in the world is not just a cookie cutter, or it shouldn't be just a cookie cutter approach. No, no. But again, I, I think a really important point, and you know, I do a lot of, if you like, conference talks on deprescribing in in with pain, with long term pain, because that's more my, if you like, specialty than specifically back pain. Although back pain is most of that, eighty percent of people in our services live with back pain of some kind. Um, is that actually when you when you um, start having conversations around medication that people, you know, it can be really, it can be quite anxiety inducing. You know, it's really quite stressful to think, if, especially if it's the yeah. only thing that you've had for for a long time, it's the only thing that gives any relief whatsoever to then have a healthcare professionals start talking to you about, you know, oh, well, have you, do you realize these are not good for you in the long term yeah. and all that? You know, sometimes that can actually have a paradoxical effect where it can increase pain for people because we know again pain being complex will be affected by things like our uh, yeah. our emotional well-being so if we're feeling stressed or anxious about it then that can have an impact on on worsening the pain and we get into a bit of a, a an unhelpful cycle a vicious cycle with this and so you know yeah. it's really important with conversations around medication to to be really you know clear transparent but also to think about well what might alternative strategies be that could be helpful so that maybe at some point in the future it might feel more possible to consider reducing some of these medications that are not helpful um mm. you know in my work with most people is is really around although i'm a prescriber the most part of my work is about helping people to come off medication but it's always a, a yeah. collaborative thing you know it's always working together and seeing are there other strategies that might help to then to then open up the possibilities of being able to wean off some of these medications that might not yeah. be so helpful. So then um, just going back to the, the removal of them in terms of taking them out of the, of, of the guidelines, you know, for, for all, all the reasons, was it, you know, can you comment as to the reason for removal? Is that mainly due to the risk or is it mainly due to their inability to actually show a positive effect at kind of managing the long-term pain or a combination of both? So it will be a combination of both. So again, it'll be looking at the evidence for effectiveness um, and, you know, scoring that and that will have scored low. And then the evidence of potential side effects, risks and harms. And if that's, you know, if they're, if they're reporting those, which, mm. you know, there are, um, uh, it's acknowledged that they have 
side effects, risks, harms associated with them, then, you know, mm. when you put those two things together, something that potentially is high risks of harm uh, with low efficacy or low effectiveness, then, um, you know, that will influence why this decision will be not to recommend this medication, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So it's basing okay. it on the evidence that's there. But of course, again, you know, NICE very much uh, is founded on this principle of evidence-based medicine and, you know, looking at proper what we call randomized controlled trials, which is a type of research which is very rigorous in terms of how it's done. And it, it tries to do lots of things like with the participants, tries to make sure they all are as similar as can be and things like that. And some of the critique mm. of that might be that that, you know, doesn't doesn't necessarily represent everybody in the population. And therefore, you know, um, maybe some people anecdotally might find that it, it works for them. Um, but the evidence overall says no. And this is, a, I think this is, you know, an issue across um, healthcare generally and the evidence base and, you know, mm. this kind of growing uh, debate between evidence-based healthcare and treating the person in front of you. And, you know, um, mm. I'm not going to pretend I have an answer to that, but it's an ongoing debate. And I, I, I guess I bring it up really to, Kind of speak to that, you know, we'll always hear people say, no, but, but I use them and they work for me. And, and, and so you have to balance. That's why I think in the, the wording in this guideline has tried to represent that with, yeah. the, you know, if someone's on them, it's not about stopping people from these medications, yeah. but it is about making sure that people are aware and that we're considering yeah. all of the alternatives that may be safer and maybe have more evidence to support them. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's really good, yeah. And I think that's the biggest take-home message is we're not, as I said earlier, this is not about stopping everyone who's taking opiates tomorrow to, to, to come off them. That's not at all what, what, what these are saying. So then you talk there about kind of alternatives. So if someone, obviously this doesn't count for medical advice, so please speak to your, your, your prescriber who, if you are you know, wanting to come off your medication, but if someone sat in front of you saying, you know, I'd like to reduce it or you feel that they need to reduce opiates, do you generally look for alternatives in terms of medication alternatives or, or everything? You know, is that kind of you know, different therapies, um, whether that might be more exercise-based management or, or lots of alternatives? Yeah, so it will be uh, kind of in everything. Um, I guess a... a, a prescriber may may say are there alternative medicines are there medicines with better evidence to support the recommending them that could be tried as alternatives but you know the reality with um most long-term pain conditions is that there isn't you know particularly great evidence out there for most medications sadly most medications seem to be more for the acute phase or the shorter term you know yeah. fresh injury type of pain um I don't know why I'm calling it saying that type of pain. Pain is pain, but yeah, yeah in the shorter yeah. term. I know what you mean, um, yeah. um, but 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 absolutely. So again, in this guideline, there was the recommendations to consider, you know, physical activity. Um, but again, that can be, you know, anxiety-inducing. If some, I mean, most people, certainly people I work with, will say, "But I, I have been trying to be active. I've tried for a long time. It makes things worse." So, so it's kind of exploring ways to um, revisit activity and exercise to see if that can get to a point to help people um, alongside um, and perhaps the evidence wasn't as strong this time but you know uh, psychological therapy psychological support may have a place for some people but basically mm. it's considering uh, a range of strategies not necessarily just medication yeah. strategies so seeing if people can learn other ways to work with um, 
the pain that they have to be able to do everything that they want to do. Um, yeah. Brilliant. And 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 that's really important as well. The, the combination of lots of different things. There's no, especially with chronic pain. You know, not not only is pain generally so complicated, but when we get into long term pain, there are so many influential factors that that can drive it up, drive it down, ramp it up, whatever you want to call it, and and have a massive impact from stress to worry, your anxiety, depression. You know, just your, your mental health, and then your activity levels, your diet. You know, there are so many things that potentially have an impact on it. So, addressing as many of these factors as possible is is beneficial. And I know. You you mentioned exercise and we know that exercise is, is is fairly you know reasonable evidence that it has some impact in 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 back pain and it's not that brilliant for long long-term pain you know there's not saying exercise is going to cure everything but it is a, a good management strategy but that could be anything you know walking general movement some gentle light stretches you know anything mm. that helps just to change your pain somehow people we say exercise and we think that means everyone has to go out and rush and play five-a-side football or rugby tomorrow yeah. and that's not at all what exercise means it's it's yeah. that and this is where that kind of evidence-informed management and that kind of two-way street between you you and your clinician is is so important and understanding what your goals are and your what you want to achieve basically you know do you want to garden okay we can introduce some gardening type exercises where you're bending down and picking stuff up and pushing the lawnmower around the lawn or whatever it might be it's a exercise doesn't mean gym and heavy weights and five-a-side football all the time does it it's such an important point isn't it yeah it's finding activity that brings joy that you enjoy that fits with your life you know not everybody myself included enjoys going down to the gym but um you know there may be other things that you can find that you enjoy dance classes it doesn't matter what it is as long as you enjoy it as long as you can access it as long as it's something you can do relatively regularly um and um and over time that that will that that tends to help but i think you know we also it's important to acknowledge that there are factors that influence our pain that are way beyond anything we can have control over so you know our kind of you know even things like the geography of where we grow up or where we live you know economic factors you know politics going on um kind of all of these factors will have an influence um poverty things like that which are often Mm. well Although we've been aware of them for some time, I guess they tend to get sometimes sidelined or ignored because, you know, if you're if you go to see a, a doctor or a, a bodywork therapist or whoever it might be, they you know, they're very limited in anything they can do about that with you. But it's important to acknowledge that these factors are, are contributing to our experience. Yeah. Um, and I, I just say that just because, yeah, sometimes we can get very focused on. Um, or we might misinterpret what we're saying to suggest that actually it's all down to us. And if we did things differently, we wouldn't have pain. We know that it, pain is just complex. I sometimes use the metaphor mm. of it being a bit like a bowl of soup with lots of different ingredients. And uh, some of those ingredients we will know about that are contributing to our pain soup. But there'll be many, many ingredients that we're perhaps less aware of or have mm. less control over. Um but sometimes the power of acknowledging that can just help us to move forward, you know, to recognize actually there are some things that are less in my control, but there are some things I may be able to take more control over. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, and again, when we think of it in that context, it starts to become really obvious why, you know, medication might be limited because it's never going to address yeah. lots of these factors. And and maybe even ironically, when you look at this the research, the data, you'll notice that often there are higher levels of prescribing these medications in areas that are more socioeconomically deprived, for example. That's well known. So it kind of speaks to something much greater than than um you know one pill going to solve all these issues 
Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, and then moving away from that, calling it a painkiller, I think is a good step towards that. You know, it's not a, this is not a, a this one pill is just about its management, augmentation, aug augmenting your pain slightly to allow you to do more exercises or, or walk a bit more or, you know, yeah. function a bit better. And then in turn, those things have that knock on effect because the positive effect on your mental health or the positive effect because of moving or the positive effect of interacting with more people because you're able to get out of the house a bit more, it mm. kind of gets the ball rolling or just helps to you know augment it slightly it's not about taking a pill to instantly go my pain is gone and i think that switching the narrative as you said stopping calling it a painkiller is a really good first step and all yeah and, and kind of maybe extending that point further if um you know so there's a great website called opioid aware from the royal college of anaesthetists that people can look up and um you know, when when that first went up, the recommendations around prescribing is that when when you're if someone's suggesting to you try this medication, it's really important to have a conversation around what it is you would like to see change in your day to day life if this medication was helping you, beyond simply reducing pain. Even though reducing pain is is you know the reason we take it and we hope that will work. Actually, it's really important to have a conversation around well, if if it was reducing the pain, what would change? in day-to-day -day life what kind of things would you like to be doing more of and then then you can use those as kind of you know to see if it's actually helping or not because sometimes the assumption is that if it reduces the pain it will improve our quality of life because we'll automatically get back to these things but we know that again it's much more complex than that and 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 sometimes just simply reducing pain doesn't mean people are able to get back to those things they want to do. So, you know, the recommendations are that we should, when we're introducing a medication, consider how is this going to help? What are your goals that you would like to see change as well as reducing the pain as a way of measuring whether it's actually helping or not? And I think that's got missed out a lot. You know, many people... I'm and maybe, you know, there's also recall bias. Sometimes it can be hard to remember the conversations when things are prescribed to us. But, um, you know, if I had a pound for every time when I asked someone, and did you have a conversation around what kind of things you'd like to see change with this medication? If I had a pound for every time someone says, well, no, you know, I'd be quite wealthy. <laughs> I love that. That's a really important point, actually, one I hadn't kind of considered before. You know, we use it as therapists in terms of what are your goals? You know, what mm. are you looking to get back to? What are you doing with that? And, and then you can use that as a measure of function moving forward. And one thing I give to a lot of patients, we've spoken about this on the podcast before, is recommendation of, of, of like a, a, whether you call it a pain diary, a function diary, just a day-to-day -day diary of things you did, things you tried, medication you took, how was your overall pain level? How was your quality of your day overall? And it can kind of give you an idea of you know, where you are, where you work. It's very easy to kind of look back kind of six weeks later and say, how's your pain? Or, and say, and they say, oh, it's still kind of similar. But then actually they've done a lot more. They've been much more functional. They've been able to get out the house. They could sit in the car more comfortably. But it's very easy, as you said, that kind of, that, that bias of where you work compared to where you are can, can overshadow it slightly. So, and then people will draw attention to that and go, oh, well, actually, I, now you say it, that was only a, a four out of 10 day, whereas th six months ago, my days on average were all eights and nines, but they might mm. feel at the time that it was quite similar, but actually they're grading it a lot lower or their function is improving. So there's lots of measures to look back on and you know, kind of help f see an improvement. And then that's got the positive effect of going, oh, actually, I did do that. Oh, no, that didn't hurt. Or I did mow the lawn. Or I've used that analogy a few times. Or I did pick up my kids with, and I didn't have that spasm. I might have been had an ache or a bit of a grumble, but I didn't have that acute spasm where I had to lie down on the floor for half an hour, which you know I heard yesterday from a patient. So that's yeah. a really good good thing to look back on. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's nuanced, isn't it? But it's really helpful to focus on 
what we're achieving, what we can do, how we can move forward sometimes. You know, a caveat with sometimes the diaries and that is they can be really helpful in the beginning to get a sense. But, you know, if we find that we're still using them months and months later, it might, you know, it, sometimes they can encourage us to focus on what what's not possible. And so it's thinking about once we've identified them, then working, yeah, with either therapist or or, you know, maybe if you've got access to resources and that's something you can help work out for yourself, a plan of how to work towards the things you want to be able to do in the, yeah, that kind of a, a, a focus. Um, we've, we've, we've evolved, haven't we? We're kind of hardwired to notice what's, what's missing, what we can't do, you know, because that, that's a safety thing. It's protected mm. us as, as human animals, you know, as we've evolved. But um, actually, it can sometimes get in the way because that's our natural thing is to notice the what's not going well. And I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely not talking about positive psychology. I'm, you know, that's not what I'm talking <laughs> about here. But there's something more about helping. Sometimes it can be really valuable to see where we are, as you're saying, Rob, you know, small steps forward, the progress that we are making, mm. that it can be possible. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The old, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, isn't it? It's the yeah. old, whoever said that, you know, the, the <laughs> yeah, young or something, whatever it is. But yeah. <laughs> They're cliches, aren't they? And you can want to bash someone on the head with your umbrella when they say them to you. But actually, there's a lot. There's a lot of truth in them. There's a lot of truth in them. Mm. Yeah, and it's a absolutely starting small, going. You know, start Brilliant. go low, go slow, build gradually. You know, they, yeah, they're they're cliches, so but but they work. One day at a time. Yeah, one mm. take it one day at a time. All of that. So then, you mentioned that one resource, um, kind of opiates. Would you mind saying what that resource again was, and if there were any other resources that people can turn to to find out more information about? opiates or back pain or coming off medication yeah so the the that opioids aware is the royal college of anesthetists if you like the faculty of pain medicines kind of website for this i can definitely send you the link rob to put up but um yeah we'll maybe from a, as well yeah but maybe from a more if you like um user-friendly if i can put it that way approach I, and and this is a shameless plug because i'm a member of the organizing committee of uh, uh live well with pain um so that's a uh, a website and resources for clinicians, but they also have a section for people who live with pain. It's called My Live Well with Pain. And on that, there's even a section on, you know, opioids and things like that to have a look at. So that's a really good uh, resource for people to check out that is in, you know, language that's accessible and things like that. So I'd uh, definitely recommend checking that one out. And it also has links to lots of um, other resources. And then again, another shameless plug I'm going to do is for people to check out the Footsteps Festival because we talked about, um, you know, thinking about other strategies beyond the medication as, as, uh, as ways to help us when we're living with pain. And, and so Footsteps Festival emerged during lockdown by people who live with pain and clinicians. And again, I'm involved in that. Um, to set up lots of kind of, you know, groups and activities and webinars and things like that. So it's all online. It's all free. Um, and it might just give people ideas of other other strategies, other approaches, other things that they might find helpful. Um, and it's for all types of pain, you know, so including back pain. Um, yeah. So there are two I'd Brilliant. probably recommend. But I'm biased because I'm involved in both of them. <laughs> you're allowed to, you're allowed to be biased well my next question was anything else you wanted to plug yourself so you kind of covered those um are you on are you a social media person are you is something you want to plug yourself on social media or are you more of a quiet stay away from social media I'm, person i'm than we pretty should be? rubbish i am on twitter and i occasionally get incensed by something and tweet but uh but for the most part i wouldn't say i'm the most exciting follow on twitter but i am there and you know if people want to connect that way that's great you know it's it, it's wonderful a lot of 
I guess my work and my interests are in working with people who live with pain together. You know, these ideas around co-production and participation and those types of approaches um, is my is my jam. I'm just starting my PhD looking into that kind of in more detail. So it's kind of, yeah, mm. the field. So, you know, people are interested in shaping things and moving forward by all means, make contact. It's kind of, it's so important um, and it's something that perhaps we could do a lot better in healthcare is work with mm. people who live with the conditions to shape the landscape agree. moving forward. Yeah. That's so good. Well, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for, for talking to us. You speak really well on these topics and that was really clear. So lots of people listening to this should take take a lot away from that, you know, whether they are struggling with chronic pain or don't know what to do or they don't want to come off their medication. They've got lots of advice there about what to do or if they were just confused about the Daily Mail headline saying, you know, X, Y and Z. And, and it can be quite scary, as you said, and it can feed into that pain cycle. If someone's saying you should never take this and someone's and they're saying, well, actually, this really helps my back pain. So, you know, it can be can be fairly confusing and it's confusing for us. And we kind of can understand the data a bit more and understand the nuance. Is, whereas if you don't, and you know most people, why would they? It's not their job to know. It, it, as it, it can be quite scary to, to read those. So thank you for taking the time out of your day to chat to us and to clear up some of these some of these questions a lot of people had about opiates, back pain, nice guidelines, and, and so much more. You're really welcome, Rob. Thanks for inviting me. I hope, I hope it was helpful. But yeah, thank you. Brilliant. Well, thank you everyone for listening. If you do have any questions, feel free to reach out. If you do have any specific questions about this episode, um, we can always put them to Dermot and, and just say, you know, can you, can you follow up? And we can send them out an email or do a tweet about them or something like that as well. So feel free to reach out on Twitter at the Backpain Pod or on Instagram at the Backpain Podcast. Thank you everyone for listening and we will catch you on the next episode. Over and out. Thanks, Dermot. Mm-hmm.